Fierce Women Writing is a partner of Terra Preta Review, which exists to unearth phenomenal writing and art by folks at all stages of their careers. Terra Preta is drawn to writing and art that grows from the trash heap of life, and they're especially interested in work by members of marginalized communities. To read their first issue, and to submit work for consideration, visit terrapretareview.org. Welcome to Fierce Women Writing, a podcast where female voices are elevated, creativity is ignited, and writers are inspired. I believe that stories can enlighten, heal, and entertain the reader and the writer. First, the writer has to quiet their doubts long enough to get the words on the page. I'm here to help you put your doubts away and focus on your creativity. Every day I talk to writers and would-be writers who aren't writing. They're not writing because they don't think they're good enough, because they've been rejected, don't have time, or don't know where to start. That's why I created this show, so that you can hear from other writers who want to inspire you to share the stories that only you can tell. I'm Sarah Gallagher. Come write with me. Hey there, fierce writers. Today's guest is Luba Vikonsky. Luba Vikonsky graduated with a master's in journalism from the Science, Health, and Environmental Reporting Program at New York University and worked for five years as a medical writer and reporter in Manhattan. She currently works as a science writer at the Wiseman Institute of Science and has authored four books. Her most recent book, Gender Mosaic, with neuroscientist Daphna Joel, debunks the myth of the male and female brain. Welcome to the show, Luba. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Luba, what are the ideal conditions for you to write? Well, early in my writing life, I worked uh, as a medical reporter in a very busy newsroom so in, in New York City. So I know for a fact that I can write anywhere. But, but since you ask about ideal conditions, then ideally, of course, I need a room of my own and, and I need... Um, a window that lets me look out far into the distance because I find that it's relaxing for the eyes to look away from the screen every now and then and uh, watch, you know, and look, look into the distance helps to release the strain on the eyes. Uh, and also my ideal conditions include the time of day. My, my best writing hours are in the morning. And if I don't get started by 9 or 10 in, at the latest, then usually I know that I've now, you know, the day is pretty much ruined. I'm, I probably won't be uh, terribly productive. And sometimes I, you know, when I'm in the process of writing a, a long piece or a book, um, I know that I'm, I'm working on it all the time. And sometimes I go to bed, like wondering how, you know, I'm going to open a chapter. And then when I wake up in the morning, the answer is, you know, right there in my head. So obviously my brain kept on working while I was asleep. So and then in the morning, I, I need to get started as early as possible and get it all. Why do you write? Uh, this has changed uh, over the years. But, you know, if you asked me some time ago, I would have given you a completely different answer because I uh, lo- always loved studying foreign languages. And English is a foreign language for me. Uh, my mother tongue is Russian. So at the beginning, I was simply just uh, looking for something to do with English. And, and one of the things you could do with it was to write, because that's a great way to, to keep learning and improving uh, the, the language. Uh, but today, I, I think uh, I can say that I, I, I write, and I really I want to write. 
because it helps me to understand the world, N not in a grandiose kind of way, but in a very sort of small and private way of my own. I write nonfiction, and uh, so what I do, you know, I take a topic and I try to make sense of it in order to present it in the best possible way. And it takes a lot of figuring out and a lot of research, and it, it usually leads to quite a few insights and revelations, and not only about this particular topic, but I usually come away with insights into similar topics in other areas as well. What are your best writing tips? My best tip is something that uh, I heard from a friend years and years ago before I myself became a writer. And at the time, it sounded like a very surprising kind of advice. Um, he said, uh, remember that people don't want to read. And today, I know exactly what he had in mind, because there's such a glut of writing. So people want to read only when, when they really have to, when they know that this is going to be really interesting or enjoyable or important uh, for them. And you must convince them very quickly that this is what they're getting from, from your writing. So really, in the first words of your story or, or first words of a book or a chapter, you, you really have to make the opening so compelling that they can't help it, that they just, it draws them in and they have to keep reading. So I often spend as much time on the opening couple of sentences as I do on the rest of, of the piece, and sometimes even more. Uh, if you have an anecdote, that's always very helpful. That's usually a, a good way of, of starting, an easy way of starting story. What are your suggestions for someone trying to overcome a block? Well, a friend of mine who is also a writer once said, you know, who can afford writing block? <laughs> um, you know, if you make your living as a writer, but it still happens and it, it, it happens to me and especially when I'm tired. So what I, I have a trick, uh, you know, for that. Uh, what I do is usually I decide that whatever I'm going to write now is not going to be usable. I will just throw a few words on, on, on the screen. I know I will just uh, put down in the simplest way, jot down uh, a few ideas, just as if I was talking to, to someone. And then I will hopefully get up you know, tomorrow and hopefully I will be in better shape uh, to, to you know, do some real writing and work with it. And usually, and that releases the block. I mean, that I can, I can do, you know, once I decide that it's not going to be usable. And then when I go back to it, you know, the following day, usually, you know, you'd be surprised how much of what, you know, what you put down actually is usable. Because sometimes when, when you don't think, you, when you're not trying to overcome anything and you just uh, kind of let things come out uh, in, in the most sort of unpolished kind of way, sometimes it's the best. What about editing and revising tips? I have uh, two rules for uh, editing and revising. Uh, throughout the writing process, but uh, especially after the first draft, uh, my rule is that structure is everything. How you structure the piece to a great extent determines whether people will want to keep reading or not. So I usually try to create some suspense or tension at the beginning of every piece or every chapter so that the reader will uh, look for it to be resolved. And I also try to create some kind of attention at the end of the paragraph, so that to, have, to give people a reason to go on to the, to the next paragraph. And my, the other tip that I have, and my other rule, is from George Orwell. 
And he said, if a word can be cut out, cut it out. And I, I personally li really like economical writing, and I always try to say whatever I have to say with a minimal number of words, even if it's in a passage that's meant to be poetic or lyrical. So I look for the most precise words possible, and then you can usually keep it short, and I always try to follow it. I go over everything, and I try to follow Orwell's rule and see if anything can be cut out, and the meaning will still be there. Can you estimate your submission to publication ratio? I can share with you the experience with my previous book, which I wrote by myself. This was uh, the biography of one of the first Nobel laureates in medicine, uh, Eli Mechnikov. He discovered the immune system and he got a Nobel Prize for it in 1908. So he's not so well familiar in the United States where I wanted to publish the book. Uh, but I found an agent in New York City rather quickly. And when she started sending out the, my proposal, I think at least a dozen publishers turned it down at first. And I think um, later on, we got a few more rejections, probably about 15 or even 16. And eventually she found a publisher for me. So I don't know what kind of a ratio that produces, not, not, a, not a very, you know, really victorious one. But I don't think it's unusual. I think getting rejections is, is the normal part of the, of the process. Uh, uh, but with that, um, what I learned with my latest book, Gender Mosaic, um, this is the one that I wrote with a neuroscientist, Daphna Joel. I learned that sometimes, sometimes if you keep getting rejections, maybe you do need to reconsider something. And um, in that case, we started with an ultra short book. We wanted to produce a, a book about 10 or 15,000 words. And, uh, and uh, we still wanted to call it a book and not an article. And we thought that we would be pioneers of this ultra-short form of, of books. And nobody wanted to, to publish it because they, you know, they said that it's too short. Uh, we tried to insist, and then we just when we saw you know, that it wasn't working, we gave up and we ex expanded it to its current length. And, and then very quickly, we got a publisher in, in the States, that is Little Brown. And then we got a publisher in, in the UK, Octopus. and. Uh, our agent has already sold translation rights into eight languages. Who are some other women writers that we should be reading right now? And that's actually a wonderful question because uh, it, it makes me sort of go back and, and recall uh, what was some of the most enjoyable uh, reading that I did in the past few years. And because I'm a nonfiction writer myself, I, I'm always on the lookout for great uh, nonfiction. So that, that's, that's going to be you know, what uh, I will recommend. One is, you know, I just mentioned ultra short books. So there was this great inspiration uh, for us was uh, a book by a Nigerian writer, Chimamanda Ngori Adichie. And she's a novelist, uh, but she's also written this sort of a mini book based on her TED talk. Uh, it's called We Should All Be Feminists. And it's, it's great. It's not preachy. It's a lot of fun. And yet it gets across a very powerful uh, feminist message. Um, then another nonfiction book uh, I'd like to recommend, people may have heard about it, it's, it's a, become a publishing phenomenon uh, by Rebecca Skloot. It's called uh, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Uh, it's a true story about how cancer cells from this particularly aggressive tumor in an African-American woman called Henrietta Lacks, they were turned into a, a really immortal cells that keep dividing in labs all over the world, and scientists are still doing uh, research uh, using these cells. 
So this book raises fascinating uh, ethical questions. And it's also a great story, and it was made into a movie with Oprah Winfrey. Uh, and, and then there's another book, another nonfiction book, um, by uh, an author called Gwen Cooper. It's called Homer's Odyssey. Uh, it's a story by a young woman who adopts a blind black kitten. Uh, she calls him Homer, and that's, that's the Homer of the title. And I didn't expect to like this book. I, I gave it a chance upon the recommendation of a friend. And I couldn't put it down. And, and you don't have to like cats to enjoy this book. I mean, maybe it helps, but it's a delightful read simply because if you know if you care about people, because it's it's really about compassion and love. And at the end, uh, Cooper tells this uh, really wonderful true story about how she herself found the love of her life. Uh, so it's really a joy to read. And where can listeners find you online? I don't really have uh, an up-to-date website, but if they Google me, they will just uh, they will find me, find a lot. And uh, what I would really like to invite them to have a look at Goodreads and to, to have a look at my latest book with Daphne Joel, uh, The Gender Mosaic. Luba, would you read some of your work for us now? Yes, I'll be happy to. Um, I will read uh, the beginning of a chapter from Gender Mosaic, and the chapter is called A History of Twisted Facts. But again, the book is about the myth of the male and the female brain and how this myth really, you know, doesn't really hold anymore when you, uh, you know, when you consider more modern science. When egalitarian ideas started circulating prominently in Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries, men faced an embarrassing dilemma. The new principles implied that all humans, women and men, were by nature equal. This notion threatened the existing social order in which women played subordinate roles. The fear was that equality would undermine the very foundations of society. Most important, uh, that given equal status, women would stop serving men. Moliere satirized these fears in his 1672 comedy, Les Femmes Savantes in which the husband rails against his wife and other science-minded women who neglect their domestic duties. Quote, they want to write and become authors. No science is too deep for them. They know the motions of the moon, the pole star, Venus, Saturn, and Mars. And my food, which I need, is neglected. End of quote. Science was called upon to resolve the political debate over the role of women in an egalitarian social order. In her book, uh, The Mind Has No Sex, Londa Schiebinger of Stanford University writes that the mission was to show that it was nature, not men, that was responsible for gender inequality. Schiebinger traces how the scientific study of female and male anatomy, including the brain, turned political. Without abandoning the axiom of equality, she argues, the medical and scientific communities became preoccupied with differences between the sexes. Quote, women were not to be viewed merely as inferior to men, but as fundamentally different from, and thus incomparable to men, she writes. Sexual differences between females and males are all too obvious but do they extend to the entire body and the brain? A great deal was at stake, answering this question in the affirmative 
could help justify the different social standing of women and men. A negative answer would suggest that women had been unjustly oppressed for centuries and that major social changes were needed. A great many philosophers and other thinkers, virtually all of them male, tended to define the scope of the differences between the sexes in the broadest possible term. Schiebinger quotes one 18th century French physician as saying that, quote, the essence of sex is not confined to a single organ, but extends through more or less perceptible nuances into every part, end of quote. Science became a legitimate arbitration arena for such disputes. Unlike religion, which had carried the burden of justifying women's inferiority up to the scientific revolution, science was thought to be impartial and therefore to provide objective evidence in the arguments over women's abilities. Uh, quote, perhaps the knife of the anatomist could find and define sexual difference once and for all, Schiebinger writes. Perhaps sexual differences even in the mind could be weighed and measured End of quote. Indeed, wrote Stephanie Shields of Pennsylvania State University, weighing and measuring the skull and later the brain, by then established as the seat of the mind, became of paramount importance. In ancient Greece, Galen had deemed the testicles the most noble part of the body, which made perfect sense because they were found only in the superior sex. But in the 17th century, it was the brain that came to be viewed as the most noble and divine organ, holder of all the senses, intelligence, and wisdom. It was hence essential that men be found to have superior brains. Initially, this seemed like an easy task. The skull, thought to provide a reliable indication of brain size, was found to be on average smaller in women than in men. What could better explain women's inferiority? Well, except for the absence of testicles. But it was too early to celebrate. After all, quite a few animals have larger skulls than we do. Sperm whales, for one, have skulls that are by far large, larger than those of humans. Scientists who were keen on proving the superiority of men over women, but surely not the superiority of whales over men, searched for a way around this inconvenient fact. They suggested that perhaps it wasn't the size of the skull, but the ratio of skull size to body size that mattered. Yet calculating the ratio failed to produce the desired results. Worse still, a number of scientists actually found that relative to the total body weight, women's skulls were larger than men's. These scientists did not for a moment conclude that the relatively larger skulls of women meant greater intelligence. Undeterred in their zeal to produce scientific evidence of male superiority, some scientists managed to interpret their findings as a sign of women's lesser intelligence. Women, they said, resembled children whose skulls were also large relative to body size which meant that women were less developed and consequently less intellectually competent than men. Thank you, Luba, for sharing your writing and wisdom with us today. It's been a pleasure.
Here's Luba with your writing prompt. Well, some you know sometimes uh, you need to just to, to give to give the your ideas sort of a, a chance to ripen, and, uh, and one of the ways that I do that when I I'm struggling with something and I wonder you know what would be the best way to open a chapter for example or how should I best sum sum something up uh, I I take some quiet time in the evening I tr- I try to think about this. Um, piece of writing that I need to write in as much detail as possible. So I'd like to invite you to think about uh, something, uh, spend some time doing that uh, in the evening before you go to bed. It doesn't have to be immediately before you go to bed, but uh, close to that time. Um, you can jot down, down something, some ideas without trying to, uh, to do actual writing, without trying to make it sound perfect. Um, and uh, just see what happens, and then you know, get up in the morning and uh, and see if you have fresh ideas and if you have some brilliant new way of putting it down, you know, in, in better better shape, making it, you know, giving it uh, some new life that you weren't able to do before. Wasn't it interesting how Luba Vikonsky said that she spends as much time, if not more, on the opening of her writing as she does on the entire rest of the piece? Have you ever given so much attention to the opening? I haven't given it that much time. And then she said that once she has her first draft, that structure is everything, and that she builds suspense or tension into each chapter, each section, even each paragraph. What focus? When I'm editing this week, I'm going to do a pass that is solely based on her advice. Now, the past few days, I've had a much easier time coming up with writing ideas and editing and revising than writing anything new. And I've been okay with that because times are really challenging and any writing is still writing. But then yesterday afternoon, I was processing some big emotions and my friend Lisa said, why don't you name that fear that you're having and write to it? or write from its perspective. And so I sat down for half an hour before my son and I made dinner, and I closed my bedroom door, and I wrote the feeling. And it helped. And I understood myself a little bit better, too. We're all dealing with a lot more than usual right now. I hope you're allowing writing to take a place in your life where it supports you. If you're creating new work right now, maybe you'll consider submitting it to the anthology of pandemic writing and art that I'm editing with my friend, the poet Anne Hagerty Davenport. You can find submission guidelines at terrapreditreview.org. That's T-E-R-R-A-P-R-E-T-A-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Next week, I'm excited to bring you Kristen Milares-Young, who reads to you from her debut novel, Subduction, which will be released on April 14th. I'm Sarah Gallagher, and I'll be back with Kristen's interview next week. Until then, keep writing. Become a supporting member of the podcast with a monthly contribution at FierceWomenWriting.com. Get more writing prompts and engage with other writers on our Instagram page at FierceWomenWriting. Remember, women is spelled with an X. You can also help us reach more writers by sharing this episode with a friend and subscribing, downloading, and reviewing the podcast. Thank you for listening.